From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening to a special edition for the 2023 Wilmington City Council election. On this show, an interview with challenger Marlo Foster, a candidate for Wilmington City Council. Foster is a former executive who represented companies like BASF, Pfizer, and Lowe's. He moved into the nonprofit sector most recently as a senior VP for the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. He grew up in Farmville, Virginia, and moved to North Carolina after grad school. He more recently moved to Wilmington with his wife and two kids. While Wilmington City Council is technically nonpartisan, Foster is a registered Democrat. And we'll have links to his campaign website on the show page for more information. We asked Foster a host of questions, largely drawn from our community agenda program, and we'll have info about that as well. Marlo Foster, candidate for Wilmington City Council, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Ben. Looking forward to it. So we have a number of questions that we have uh, produced from our conversations with folks in the community. But before we get to that, I just want to ask you, you know, what do you think is the biggest issue or the biggest issues facing Wilmington, and how do you plan to tackle them? So I have three issues I'm focused on in my campaign, two of which I think are, are of paramount importance. The first is housing affordability. You know, whether it's the chronically unhoused, whether it's the firefighter, teacher, or other first responder trying to buy their first home, the median home cost in Wilmington is $400,000. And how we address that is going to be a real challenge for the Wilmington City Council. The second is public safety. I am laser focused on juvenile crime, which has gone up post-pandemic, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that, and also also the opioid and fentanyl crisis in the city of Wilmington. And so uh, those are the two areas I'm laser focused on. The third area is job creation, critically important. Uh, you know, we always are not going to have an Encino or a Live Oak Bank, and we need to make sure that we're incubating small and medium-sized businesses. You know, most people get their jobs from small and medium-sized businesses, and I want every Wilmingtonian to have the opportunity to have gainful employment, because really it goes back to the first two issues, right? If you're going to talk about housing affordability, you need to have a job that pays well. If you're going to talk about preventing juvenile crime, juveniles need to see a path to a job so that they can have gainful employment. And if you're going to talk about the opioid and fentanyl crisis, getting those individuals the treatment that they need and then making sure that they have job opportunities is a great way to to reduce the epidemic. Right on. Well, I think a lot of these questions are going to sit neatly with those concerns because it's what we've heard from the community. First, the top concern we hear when we've seen is affordable housing. So you 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 are on the mark there. Rent has gone up. On average, 53% over the last two years, just staggering in some places. I mean, right to the point, what can the city do about it? That's actually within your jurisdiction. Yeah, so there are a couple of things. Uh, the first is that the city ha- provides gap financing, and this is more on the developer side. But what it does do is reduce the cost of land acquisition, which is a primary driver of the ultimate cost of developing a property, and in turn, 
a primary driver of what it costs to purchase that home. So the city provides gap financing to help developers reduce that cost, uh, and they in turn, the city has expectations that they will provide affordable housing. Now, it means different things to different people when we say affordable, but affordable housing. The second thing that the city does is has a homeowner's assistance program, first-time home buyers. And so what the city says is, look, if you are having a problem compressing the difference between what the down payment is and what you can afford, we will provide home buyers assistance to you to help you meet that down payment. Critically important, especially for first-time home buyers. The third thing that the city can do, and I was talking to the city manager about this, the city does have surplus property, uh, which has been bequeathed to them or that may be in repossession. Uh, and they have the opportunity to give that property away, give that property to a developer who's interested, from my perspective, in doing the right thing for the community. I've had discussions with developers, uh, and look, you know, I grew up in the private sector. I've worked in nonprofit, private, and public. Developers need to make their money. We need to be honest about that. But what the developer community says to me, or at least some developers, is that, look, we just need to make a little bit of money, and we need for those dollars that we make to be certain, just like anybody else wants in their job. But on the flip side, we also know that we have to come to the day table and be part of the solution in terms of addressing housing affordability. And here is where I think we have an opportunity between home builders, the developer community, the realtor community, and the city, and in turn city council, to say, look, we have these properties. Let's give them to developers to truly take a significant bite out of the housing affordability issue. Because what you typically see is if you have 100 units, 10 or 15 of them may be quote-unquote affordable, around a certain percentage of AMI. And, and that's great. That's 10 to 15 units we didn't have. But if we want to say 50 units or 100 units or 200 units, that's going to take some visionary thinking and that's going to take some partnership. One of the things we've heard from housing experts is that based on the way New Hanover County, and more specifically Wilmington, is set up, we've got water, we've got wetlands, we're down to a couple percent of buildable land. The future of, of building in Wilmington is going to be redevelopment. And to meet just the staggering number of units that we need, not even just for workforce and affordable housing, but just units total, it looks like we're going to have to build denser and in some cases build vertical. And that's where you run into people who are in neighboring areas and don't really like it. So the question that has been coming up in all of our conversations about housing is where will this denser and possibly vertical development go? Well, if I knew the answer to that, Ben, I would bottle it and I'd sell it and I wouldn't be running for Wilmington City Council. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, you're dead on. Um, what we what The challenge is, you're correct, we can no longer go horizontal. We must go vertical. We must go mixed use and we must have uh, denser development. And we must protect our tree canopy in the process. All of those things go together. And I think it's incumbent upon members of Wilmington City Council uh, to have the intestinal fortitude to say, look, a lot of people will say we want housing affordability and density, but not next to my neighborhood because that may impact uh, the value of my home. And I've heard that sitting in on many a city council meeting when developments have been proposed that had an affordability mix. 
But I think as city council people, it's incumbent upon us to, to have the guts to say, look, we need to address this problem. We're serious about addressing this problem, and we need to make sure that that what we vote on, the solutions that we bring, work for all Wilmingtonians. And some people will be unhappy, and we just have to recognize that, uh, respect that, allow them to, to air their concerns. But at the end of the day, if we are going to be serious about this problem, we have to be serious about the votes that we take, and we have to be serious about addressing. Tree cover is definitely one of the issues we hear um, from folks, although the, to be fair, that is more in the county where there are trees left to cut down, <laughs> just to be candid. Right. Uh, but the other issue we hear when developments come in, you know, obviously people want it to be aesthetically pleasing, but the infrastructure impact, namely right. traffic. Right. So the city has some control over this. Some of it is out of the city's control. But what are your thoughts on dealing with the traffic impact of going denser? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as, as someone goes through um, the planning commission and, and thinking about the traffic impact and they provide the planning studies, um, you know, I trust the experts to provide expert opinions to Wilmington City Council. I'm not a traffic impact expert. What I often say to people when, when I'm door knocking or when I'm talking to, to constituents, they say, we have a traffic problem in Wilmington. I say, no, we don't have a traffic problem. We have a choke point problem. So if you think about the loops, if you think about Masonburg, if you think about Oleander and college, we have a choke point problem. And what happens is the traffic that comes out of the choke points, when people are not moving, they are extremely frustrated. But if you want to see a traffic problem, go to Capitol Boulevard in Raleigh, North Carolina, US-1. That is real traffic. So we've got to be smarter about the way we manage uh, our traffic flow. When we have developments, we need to rely on the experts in terms of the traffic study and the impact. Um, and to some extent, I feel like we, we've got to take We've got to take some emotion out of it. We have to recognize that we have these choke points. We need to be strategic about addressing those choke points. Uh, we need to move forward in a cooperative way. Now, I will say this. You know, I, I don't know how many of the citizens of Wilmington are well aware that a large portion of our roads are state roads. And so the Wilmington City Council has very little to do with some of the traffic challenges that we have. What we can do, and what I have said to, to individuals that I've talked to them, is that the fact that we are not higher up on the list of the state DOT, to me, is an influence issue. What are we doing as Wilmington City Council members to reach out to DOT, to reach out to our state elected leaders, uh, to reach out to, to other regulatory bodies, to reach out to our congressional delegation and say, you know what, we need help here, we need for you to exert influence from your office, appropriately so, because we shouldn't have these challenges we're having with traffic. We shouldn't have to be dealing with the Cape for Memorial Bridge and, and the pain of that because we're low down on the DOT list. Another aspect of development, over the last five, six years, I've personally watched a ton of redevelopment in what's called the greater downtown Wilmington area, but I'm talking about Castle Street, what is now being called the Soda Pop District, uh, the Cargo District, the North Side, and the flip side to all of these cool new restaurants and apartment buildings are longtime residents who feel like they're going to get priced out of their neighborhood or that they're just concerned that gentrification in general will somehow destroy the culture of, of their neighborhood. 
Now, no, that's not entirely within city council's powers, but it's certainly something people have turned to the city to address. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think some of that's very true, right? Um, you take Castle Street, for instance, the, the, the culture, the nature of Castle Street. I mean, historically, as you well know, Ben, uh, it was a street of black business prominence. Um, and it was, quite frankly, a, a street of black political influence and prominence. That has changed somewhat. The nature of the street has changed. Now, I'm a free market guy. Uh, if someone wants to sell their home and they find that to be to their benefit and they decide that they want to move somewhere else, so be it. You know, it's their land. They own it. It's their home. They own it. So be it. I think the process has to be, the process has to be very open and transparent. I think individuals need to seek counsel so that they clearly understand not it's not only about selling the home but if we're going to talk about housing affordability the second piece of that is where are you going to go uh, and eventually let's say you're going over to castle hayne uh, or you're going across the bridge then that's going to have impact ultimately on the affordability in those places the third piece of that and it goes back to the discussion of having a true partnership with the development community is that if a developer is looking at, say, a, a stretch of Castle Street or so, we need to have good partnership to say we want to create a path for those who want to stay in these homes after redevelopment. They have the support that they need to have that be a possibility. And I, and I believe we can do that. It won't happen in all instances, but I truly believe if we have people focused on what is best for all of Wilmington, that that will be a possibility. So just to develop that a little bit more what I mean what does that look like for say you know a resident who's living across the street from a new development that's coming in like what are the things that the city can offer that person or encourage a developer to offer that person yeah so if so if a property is being redeveloped so first of all if someone's bought out and they make the decision to move so be it or if someone is bought out and then they want to purchase whatever the redevelopment looks like and then we kind of go back to that all right what does that home buyers assistance uh, program look like we go back to within a stretch of, let's say, 10 homes were purchased and redeveloped. You know, do we have two homes or three homes that are targeted for affordability, whatever that means in that instance? Um, and, you know, what percentage of AMI is that going to be? Is it going to be 80 percent? Is it going to be 60 percent? Is it going, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, and so we need to bring those resources to bear for that individual making that decision about one, whether to sell and then partnering with the developer to say, all right, we are still dedicated to housing affordability even as we redevelop. And we're going to make sure that a portion of this redevelopment is set aside for housing affordability. All right. So this is sort of the last broad housing picture, and it is you know, kind of the bottom of the funnel of housing distress. So, you know, you have folks who have been pushed out of middle class housing into affordable housing or workforce housing, folks who've been pushed out of workforce housing into government subsidized housing. And then you've got folks who have pushed out onto the street. So the city is not the only partner here dealing with homelessness, but most of the, I would say most visible homelessness does occur in the city of Wilmington. And it's probably one of the top three or, or four issues that we hear about all the time. So what would your approach be from city council on this issue? 
So that that's a significant challenge, Ben. And you know, I don't believe in uh, getting ahead of myself. Again, it's one of those things. If you could perfectly bottle it, uh, you wouldn't be running for city council. You'd be doing something different. But but here's what I'll say. So l- let's start with the chronically unsheltered. Right. Typically, that is a mix of issues. I was recently meeting with the police chief and, and talking about this. Uh, you know, substance abuse clearly is a challenge for the chronically unsheltered. Mental illness clearly is a challenge for the chronically unsheltered. Poverty clearly is an issue for the chronically unchallenged. And then within that, we also have the crime element that, you know, there is human trafficking going on in the unsheltered population. There are other elements. So each of these require a different solution, right? If it's crime, then the the Wilmington Police Department can be in charge of enforcement and dealing with the crime aspect. If it's mental illness and substance abuse, we've got to work with organizations like Trillium and Coastal Horizons and make sure that we bring resources to bear for those individuals to, first of all, get them out of that cycle um, and then work with organizations like you know, Good Shepherd Center, among others, to say, look, we want them into a safe place. We want them to focus on refocus on developing a skill or enhance the skill they already have that they may have lost track of during this time where maybe they were, uh, you know, suffered a mental illness or substance abuse and put them on the right path. And that is a long-term um, process where there, there's just no easy answer. I mean, that is just the hard work of being an elected official to make sure the resources are there and the hard work of community partners to make sure uh, that they can get the work done. I, I don't think anyone who works in that field would expect you to be able to do anything on your first council meeting that would fix homelessness. But is there anything you think the city could do differently than what they're doing right now? Because they are, they are taking efforts right now. Yeah, so... This is kind of a leap, uh, and it, it goes really to my third issue of job creation. So there are the challenges of the unsheltered. And then I, I look over here, and I see real job opportunities. And I say, how do we bridge the gap between the two, right? Wilmington's growing, whether we like it or not. Uh, and you know, developers, home builders will say, look, we have a dearth of HVAC techs. We have a dearth of plumbers. We have a dearth of electricians. If we can get someone interested in that trade, they can make a very good living. So, you know, we address the issue of wages, and then subsequently we provide an income through their employment that allows them to, to be able to afford a home or afford rent and no longer be unsheltered. And so it's not a quick process, Ben. I mean, it really is not a quick process, but it is a, it's a concerted effort that we have to take step by step to move someone from being unsheltered into a position where they can be permanently sheltered uh, and paying rent or, or owning their own home. Uh, and then we have people who kind of you know transition back and forth. You know, sometimes they're sheltered, sometimes they're not. Same applies. You know, it's really having that connection to what is available in terms of employment, what are your barriers, and we need to be caring and respectful of the barriers that are occurring for people to have gainful employment, help them address those. Uh, and and have them become uh, productive citizens in the city. So I have heard city council members in the past say that homelessness is not really the city's problem, that they support nonprofit partners who provide those wraparound services. Are you talking about the city taking a more direct hand in making sure those dots are connected from 
being on the street to being sheltered to some kind of job training to actually rejoining successful society. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, we cannot wash our hands as members of city council. Uh, we can't wash our hands of saying, you know, that is not, you know, city council's problem or the city's problem. Those are people. They're people. Uh, and we have to appreciate that. And we have to ensure that we come alongside them and support them in a way that allows them to get on the right path. So you've spoken so far about public safety and economic development. So I want to get to both of those and give you a chance to talk about it. Um, to start with public safety, there's two parts of this. There's one, there's sort of how public safety works, whether that's you know community policing or other police philosophies. There's the staffing and recruitment crisis that every police department in the country is going through. So there's a lot to get to here. And then there's specifically what you mentioned, which is our ongoing opioid crisis and the issue of juvenile uh, crime and recidivism for juvenile cr criminals. So start wherever you want, but let's let's start to get into the public safety stuff. So I'll, I'll give you again a recent conversation with the police chief, and I'll just you know a couple of facts. Uh, so uh, Wilmington Police Department is down forty to fifty bodies in the field, twenty percent of the workforce. On an average night, they get 500, blew my mind, 500 calls that they have to respond to. Um, and, and you know, the chief was saying, you know, we have the calls for service, which must be responded to. So that's his top priority. Calls for service, got to be there. Uh, and then his second priority is gun violence, you know, dealing with gun violence. And so I think the first thing is, We've got to recognize that we have a police department that is taxed to the limit uh, with the current staffing that they have. Uh, so that's that's a key. Um, and then I think the other thing we have to realize is that we do have a gun issue in Wilmington. Uh, we need to be transparent about that, open about that, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then we have to realize that we have this juvenile crime challenge some of which really, I believe, came out of the pandemic. Uh, we'll talk about, I have a little saying, no time for crime, and we can dig into that. Uh, some of which came out of the pandemic when kids were not in school, uh, when after-school programs were either reduced or closed due to COVID numbers, and they were not engaged in a nurturing environment that kept them out of situations where they decided to do the wrong thing. Um, so maybe maybe we start there with some of those and we can dig into opioid and fentanyl. Sure. So let's start with the, the staffing issue mm -hmm. because this is, you know, these are city employees. So here's something you can get your hands on, you know, uh, and, I, and I've seen Chief Donnie Williams come in front of city council and say it's not just a staff, staff shortage. He actually would like officers above and beyond that to really do the job the way he thinks it should be done. So is that just a matter of political will and just putting money into recruiting, retaining, and hiring? Well, I think it's I think it's political well and it's investment in the Wilmington Police Department, but it's also, well, and this is kind of part and parcel of that, but it's also making sure that the wages, the salaries that we offer are competitive. Because if someone can drive across the bridge, if someone can leave, you know, city of Wilmington Police Department and go to the New Hampshire County Sheriff's Office and make more when they're already having potentially to drive across the bridge anyway, you know, it, it all kind of comes together. And so first and foremost, we want to make sure that we pay our, whether it's Wilmington Police Department or any other city employee, we need to be competitive in what we pay them. We need to recognize that, you know, being honest, it's not only the Wilmington Police Department that has this 
law enforcement challenge. So we need to recognize that. And we need to be willing to invest the resources from a city standpoint to ensure that the chief, this chief or any chief, has the resources that she or he needs to be successful, uh, successful in the role. All right. So gun violence. Do you I mean, you said that we need to be transparent about this. Do you think there's more the city, the police department, local news, whoever? All, I mean, these are all part of the information process. Is there a lack of transparency now or is that just something we need to maintain? I, I think we need to maintain it. You know, we were talking about, uh, again, the chief and I just, you know, some of the issues and challenges that he has, you know, calls for service, unlocked cars, you know, property theft. All right. Property theft. <laughs> People will leave their car open, unlocked, and leave a gun in the dash, like in the glove compartment. Like, what are you doing? You know, I get on my daughter all the time. She leaves the car unlocked in our driveway, credit card and and money. So I'm like, what are you doing? I did see, I saw a car the other day in the Lowe's parking lot with a Glock sticker on the back window. And I was like, well, not only do I know you have a gun, I know, I know you've got a nice handgun. Right, that's right. And so, I mean, so... You know, it, it is a wide range of things that that ultimately lead to the gun violence. And, you know, people will always assume if you say gun violence, it's gang related. No, it's not necessarily. I mean, there could be a whole host of things. It could be domestic violence. It could be some other a gambling dispute. It could be anything. But but making sure that we take a fulsome look at, at how we're addressing law enforcement and some of these things, again, people not locking their cars. You know, we'll go a long way. If people start locking their cars and putting their guns away, we'll go a long way in helping to address that problem. Is there anything else you think the city could do? Because obviously there's a lot of partners here, but anything else the city specifically could do to decrease gun violence? Yeah. So now we'll kind of transition from from general to juveniles, okay? And I I think what's critically important, again, my phrase, no time for crime. And here's what we see. Uh, We need to make sure and this is a budget priority that I would have, that our community rec centers, our gyms are open on Fridays and Saturdays. We need to make sure that we're supporting our other community partners like Boys and Girls Club, like Link, which we do, which the city does support, but to the extent that we can keep our young people out of harm's way, doing something productive that builds into their life. That's why I say no time for crime. My daughter gets off, gets out of school at 345, goes to the tennis court, plays tennis until 8 o'clock, comes home, does her homework, goes to bed. My son goes, gets out of school at 3.45, goes to the dojo on Taekwondo until 8.15, comes home, does his homework, goes to bed. He doesn't have time to get into anything that's inappropriate. And he's so exhausted on the weekends from doing that all week. Uh, you know. And so you know, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, Ben, and I don't mean to be flip, and we are truly blessed, and we have the resources for our kids to do these things. But the city can invest also to make sure, again, that it's about all Wilmingtonians and all kids in the city, that they have a place to go on Friday and Saturday night where they're not getting involved uh, in bad activity. I think that talking about the other thing that I think would help some of these young folks, a lot of the young men that I see involved in crime, and a lot of them are black and Hispanic, but not exclusively, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are young. They're mm-hmm. young men, and a lot of these are social media arguments that just boil over into violence when we're specifically talking about gun violence here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are people who are out of high school, but but still early in their life. And I think one of the problems that sort of correlates with that is a lack of economic opportunities. Right. I know there's been a lot of discussion about this, but at the end of the day, 
if you've got something to lose, if you got a job you could lose, if you've got aspirations and hopes for a better future you could lose, mm-hmm. you seem less likely to get involved with what I think some police officers have called, called gang-adjacent violence. It's not, you know, the gangster disciples going against the bloods, but it's people who, because they're around gangs, have access to guns. So when these arguments boil over, the, the violence gets deadly. So where is that missing piece for the economic opportunities for people in that situation? And I think it's I think it's trade disciplines. Uh, so uh, I was talking to a Wilmington police officer and he said, Marlo, look, if we know that our window is between roughly 11 and 13, if, if we don't capture them between 11 and 13, it's over. If they made a decision about their path uh, in that time frame and we can't pull them back, if they're going on the wrong path, then it's over. And look, my parents were both educators. Uh, my dad was a high school principal. My mom was a home ec teacher and a guidance counselor. I'm a firm believer in education. I'm a firm believer in college. I'm a firm believer in, va- in advanced degrees. If that is what you want and if that is what makes sense for you, where we have lost our way, in my opinion, is a lack of respect and focus on the trade disciplines. Not every child is destined for a four-year degree. But my mom always tells me, if you can lay a brick, you have a job for life. And going back to our earlier discussion, Ben, when we look at the growth that's occurring in Wilmington, the trade disciplines and those with trade craft are in desperate need uh, by developers, by home builders, whatever the case may be. And that is truly gainful employment. And we need to reinsert that early on into elementary and middle and high school so that so kids say, all right, I can make $90,000 a year as a welder because that's a discipline that's, that's really needed. I can make $75,000 a year as an HVAC tech because we're in desperate need in this city. And I don't think they realize that right now. So where does the city have a role in that in that process? Well, I think the city has a role in partnering. Well, what I would say is, as a member of city council, this is what I would do. I would work with um, Cape Fear Realtors. I'd work with the Home Builders Association. I'd work with the, the developer community. And I would be a conduit to bring them into the schools, uh, in partnership, obviously, with the school system, bring them into the schools to start laying out where the real opportunities for employment are and what a career path looks like. Uh, and I've, I've had this conversation uh, with the home builders, and they said, look, we, we are in desperate We'd love to do that. We'd love to come to the classroom and say, all right, we know based on kind of where we're growing in Wilmington, we're going to need you know, 50 HVAC techs, 25 plumbers, whatever the case is. If you follow this path, if you get these certifications, um, then you will be able to be an HVAC tech and immediately have a job because we're in such desperate need. And I think, you know, being an advocate, being vocal, using the bully pulpit and being an example, being the present, you know, as a black male, being present, you know, being present as a mentor to other black males to say, look, there are great employment opportunities out here. I want you to recognize it. And you don't have to um, lead a lifestyle that's not in your best interest. So the last, the last public safety issue I want to touch on here is, is the opiate epidemic, um, which I've been covering since I started reporting in Wilmington. And where do you think the city could do anything different or anything more about how our community is handling this? You stumped me, Ben. I mean, just to be perfectly honest, and I, I don't know 
right now what the answer is. I, I do know this. Um, you know, it's not purely a law enforcement answer. I mean, we cannot arrest our way out of the opioid and fentanyl crisis. Um, I do know it's a combination of education, counseling, rehabilitation. Um, and again, you know, not to harp on this, but going back to those individuals who, uh, you know, feel or felt or still feel disenfranchised, that they don't have real economic opportunity, and making sure that we articulate and use our office and our role as city council people to articulate that there are real opportunities out there and, and really lean into the home builders and the developer community. And I keep coming back to them because I think based on how this economy is growing, those trade disciplines are where the real opportunities are now. We talk about what we can do now. That's something we can do now because the need is now. Um, so when we get those young people ready to go, they're going right into those roles. But, uh, you know, that's one of those things where it's, it, it's just a long, uh, unfortunately painful, got to just nose to the grindstone, do the hard work issue. You, you were speaking a little bit earlier about economic development. And in the past, the city and county, often in, often in partnership, have made significant investments in the pharmaceutical and tech industries, um, companies like Live Oak Bank and PPD. And I've heard from some folks that they'd like to see different kinds of economic investments. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about the city's power to in incentivize different parts of the market or, you know, different uh, jobs that sort of are accessible to different groups of people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, two great examples. Um, you know, Channel is a great example. Uh, Genesis Block is a great example. I mean, we are not always going to have the Live Oak Banks, the Encinos. Those are great organizations. Uh, but the vast majority of people, again, get their jobs from small and medium-sized businesses. And we need to be in tune to that. And we need to be in tune to what drives our economy. So, you know, we think about the service industry, we think about the culinary arts, you know, Block Eats just, you know, had its grand opening. That fits perfectly into what the city of Wilmington is all about in terms of developing that skill set, in terms of being able to learn how to run your own business, run your own restaurant business, um, you know, grow that business, have a solid business plan. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be about that are cool and unique uh, and are a needed skill set based on where our economy is and what drives our economy. So other than investments in Block Eats, which just opened, <laughs> it is a cool, for people who don't know, it is kind of like a training incubator, plus you can actually go there and eat the food. Yes, <laughs> which uh, I did when, on the grand opening. <laughs> and there's some good food there. <laughs> Be, beyond that, though, in terms of, you know, Wilmington is largely small businesses, mm -hmm. um, not all restaurants. So are, are there other parts of our local economy, especially our service economy, mm -hmm. that the city could help with? Yeah, I mean, there, there have been discussions about other things that could be done. You know, one of the things that, that's been discussed a lot is establishing social districts, right? You know, how do we, and I'm a, a tremendous advocate for small business, small and medium-sized business. Uh, I think there, there are two aspects to that, right? What does it mean to have a social district and what is the potential impact on alcohol consumption? And then how do you deal with that from a law enforcement standpoint? Um, 
I tend to believe if someone's intent is to go out and get drunk, whether they're staying at one bar or whether they're moving around to multiple bars, uh, if they want to get drunk, they're going to get drunk. If they want to be responsible, they're going to be responsible. But what it does do is provide more economic opportunity for those businesses downtown, which I think, which I think is great. You know, which I'm a huge advocate for. Um, I think when you think about kind of you know northern part of downtown, gateway, mixed use development, and really creating places where more uh, conversations are occurring and community gatherings are occurring. Uh, and people are showing up just to sit and be in community. I think that is tremendously important for economic development and kind of lends itself to spurring that, you know, that kind of mixed use, a variety of, of functions for a venue uh, and bringing in a mix of Wilmingtonians. So it's not just for one race or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. It's for everybody to come. Uh, and live and be in partnership. So, I mean, those are the things that are really kind of top of mind for me in terms of development. Sort of in the background of a lot of these conversations, you know, uh, you talk about social districts and, and being responsible. When I lived in New York City for many years, uh, I was a strong supporter of the local restaurant and bar industry, and I never got a DUI because mm-hmm. I didn't have a car because New York has amazing public transportation. Wilmington has struggled with public transportation. And I think that's behind the housing issue to a certain extent, because where you can live and where you can work aren't always the same place. I think it's part of our traffic problem. I think it's part of our going out to eat and drink responsibility uh, problem. So from, imagine you're you're elected, you now have a seat on city council. What is what is your take on WAVE and where we're at right now and where you think it should go? Well, I- so what has happened in the last year or so with WAVE is more of kind of the smart transit concept where we're going to have smaller, smaller buses, you know, cars. Um, so it's not necessarily the big WAVE bus, um, but it's smaller units that make more sense from a fiscal responsibility standpoint. I think that's critically important. I think we have to continue to get smarter and smarter and smarter about that. The second piece of that, and I always say, you know, WAVE is good north to south, not necessarily strong east to west, and a lot of the growth is occurring east to west. And so, you know, matching up, and it, it, all these issues come together, right, Ben? If we're going to talk about job opportunities, we're going to talk about where the growth is occurring, and if someone's going to have the opportunity to take a job and they don't have a car, they're, they're going to need to be able to get to that job. And so how do we match up how we um, increase our density, mixed-use developments, follow the growth patterns that are going uh, east to west, and match that to what type of transit makes the most sense, and it may not be the large bus. And I think that is just where we have to get better and better and better and better at. Because everybody can't take an Uber, right? Everybody can't take an Uber to work. Um, so they need to be able to have the opportunity for city transit, but it's got to be smart and it's got to be economically viable. Wave itself is actually facing a pretty significant budget shortfall in the next couple of years. You know, federal COVID relief money is going to run out. There's some other transportation money that's going to run out. Historically, the city has not always been able to count on the county to be a backstop for financial shortfalls. Is this something you would make a budget priority? I think public transit is a priority. I would have to dig deeper. You know, I don't want to get ahead of myself uh, and then start saying, uh, 
you know, leaning into the county before I'm even elected. But I mean, clearly, clearly we know as a community that wave in the umbrella term public transit is clearly important. But I, I would need to better understand, uh, and this would be one of my early priorities, right? I would need to better understand, uh, you know, again, how that growth is occurring east to west. We know that's where the growth is occurring, where the true gaps are, where the economic opportunity is. And I'd want to have a sensible plan that says, look, you know, county, if we want you to, to help us backstop or if we want you to invest more, it needs to make sense you know, for both parties. And some people say, well, you know, I don't know about the county. We, we have this need in the city. And uh, yes, absolutely true. But if, you know, city government or county government is going to invest resources, it needs to make sense from a budgetary standpoint, but it needs to make sense for the citizens as well. We need to be investing the resources in something that's going to change the situation. All right, so last question about moving around the city. We hear about from people a lot is the desire to have more walkability and bikeability, which, to the city's credit, there's a 2014 transportation bond that's still rolling out, has brought that kind of you know, bike path, pedestrian path to a lot of parts of the city. We do hear from a lot of people they feel like that job is not done. How important is that to you? Well, I think walkability, bikeability is incredibly important. And the key is if, you know, as we continue to invest, the citizens need to use it, right? Uh, so if we're going to talk about, I still say we have a choke point problem. Uh, some people say we have a traffic problem. But if we create a walkable, bikeable city, it's incumbent upon the citizens to use that walkability and use that bikeability. And I'll use where I live as an example. Uh, so we live in Lincoln Forest. Uh, so if I'm coming um, out of my neighborhood, I'm right at the Whole Foods, I'm trying to cross over Oleander to get to Harris Teeter, and that is signing a death warrant. Like, there's there's no way to say, I saw a woman with her child on a bike, and they were trying to bike across. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? So that's an issue, right? That That is a walkability, bikeability issue in a major area where now, we can get to the Lidl because it's on. It, you don't have to cross Oleander. So we can come out and we have our urban shopping cart and we walk, you know, walk up to Lidl and we shop. But if we want to get over to Harris Teeter, we can't do that safely unless we're in a car. And so, yes, walkability, bikeability is critically important. And it needs to be, especially when we talk about these choke points in areas where we have extreme traffic, it needs to be very well thought through for those areas so people can move about safely and not necessarily have to be in their car. All right. Well, those are our questions. Um, before, I, before I let you go, and you've been very generous with your time, so thank you. Uh, closing thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I'm just excited. Um, you know, I always tell people this is why God put me here. Um, some people don't like public service. I couldn't think of anything else that anyone should do with their life but uh, be in public service. And it's heartening for me as I've talked to people across the city of Wilmington that our issues of housing affordability, you know, public safety with a focus on juvenile crime and the opioid and fentanyl crisis uh, and job creation, you know, incubating small and medium-sized businesses, no matter where I've gone, everybody said, you know what, you're dead on. You're, you're dead on. And, and that can be from Creekwood to Rankin to Landfall to Lincoln Forest. Most people want the same basic things. They want to be able to afford a home. They want their kids to be safe and to get a good education. They want to be able to save for retirement. Uh, 
and, and they want to be able to enjoy their life and be comfortable. And that cuts across socioeconomic class, race, ethnicity, gender. It doesn't matter. And so knowing that we have a message that's resonating in that way is, is very heartening to me. All right. Well, Marlo Foster, candidate for Wilmington City Council, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. That was our interview with Marlo Foster, a challenger who's running for Wilmington City Council. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Newsroom. And check out our other candidate interviews at whqr.org or wherever you get the Newsroom as a podcast. <laughs>